Enjoy the convenience of seven days a week banking and extended hours with Cube from First Arkansas Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. It's always good to catch up with him. Connor, appreciate it, man. How you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. How you guys doing? Well, we're doing good, man. I know uh, college football is, you know, always going, but kind of taking a backseat a little bit with the Super Bowl and everything going on. But it's such a weird transition when we're talking about, you know, Texas and Oklahoma joining. We've known this for a few years now. And earlier this week, there was reports about, oh, looks like they had a stalemate. It's not going to be happening. Uh, looks like they're going to have to wait until 2025. And then, boom, suddenly, just like that, they're officially joining in 2024. No questions asked. So, First off, what do you make of them joining in 2024? And also, why did it change so quickly just in the matter of the past few days? Yeah, it's a good thing that I didn't go on like five different platforms and basically say, oh, yeah, so Texas and Oklahoma not joining the SEC until 2025. Uh, Yeah, definitely did that. Hmm. And I did have the caveat in barring a last-minute change with the TV partners. That's what had to change. Oh, there you go. ESPN had to get enough money. So, yeah, I mean, that's why we had this sort of breakthrough. Um, in terms of why this this came out last night, because you know, the buyout money, you look at that and you're like, wow, Oklahoma and Texas, that's $100 million they're giving the Big 12 to leave early. And it's like, all right, they're just taking away from revenue distribution and they were able to work it out with uh, Texas being able to play Michigan in a non-conference game that's going to be on Fox. And it's like, all right, we could probably figure this out a little while ago. I think there was always going to be a desire to line this up with the expansion of the playoffs. That is what Greg Sankey has been so unbelievably good at throughout this entire playoff era is understanding how the SEC best benefits in the playoffs. And what I mean by that is it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have a 16-team super conference if you're still playing a 14 playoff. But in December, we found out playoff is going from 14 to 12 teams, and that'll be happening in 2024. So you can now line this up to have your super conference with the start of the new expanded playoffs. And from the SEC standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. So financially, just we know that that's always what drives everything. You know, when there's going to be some money made, as we just saw the SEC make $50 million per institution, essentially. But as far as the money goes, what is it going to look like as far as what Oklahoma, Texas may owe to the Big 12 going into the SEC? Just how is that going to play out since they're leaving a year early? Yeah, I don't think they get full revenue distribution yet. It's definitely not – I haven't seen the exact numbers of it. It's definitely not a Rutgers-Maryland situation in the Big Ten. You want to look up some interesting facts about that. Go look that one up. Rutgers like didn't get full revenue distribution shares in the Big Ten for like eight years, which was just comical because of what everybody thought of Rutgers to the Big Ten. It's not going to be a situation like that, but – I believe they're going to be fully invested in the conference for like most of this, you know, most of this decade that we have remaining. And th- that number is going to be huge. I mean, we're talking about $100 million by the end of the decade, like twice what it currently is with this new TV contract, with this new playoff deal. There's so much money to be made. It's, it's ridiculous to kind of think about, but it, when you see the dollars and cents, you realize, okay, that's exactly why Oklahoma and Texas, even though they're not going to get that full revenue, revenue distribution early on, it still makes so much more sense for them in the long term to come to the SEC rather than stay in the Big 12. Which team between Texas and OU was built to have more success immediately in the SEC? Now, of course, that's something that can change depending on how this upcoming season plays out. But as you see it right now, which team would you say between Texas and OU? I mean, if we were talking about this like six months ago, I would have said Oklahoma without a doubt. But 
man, that was a pretty rough year one for Brent Venables. I had Oklahoma making the college football playoff. I, I thought we were overestimating all that they lost, and I kept thinking to myself, well, wait, I get a Brent Venables defense with Jeff Levy coaching up that offense with Dylan Gabriel running the show. What's not to like? And then, you know, it just turned out to be kind of a disastrous year for him and a very atypical year by Oklahoma standards. So I, I'd give the nod to Texas. I, I think Texas, despite all of the horns down ways that we can make fun of Texas, still has a, a very talented roster and is bringing in somebody who, in case you haven't heard, Arch Manning comes with a little bit of buzz. And if you could tell yourself, all right, so for the next like three to four years, they're going to have either Quinn Ewers or Arch Manning at quarterback, you'd be like, yeah, that, that team is set up really, really well. And I think Stark actually knows what he's doing as a head coach. I think he's run into a couple of difficult situations so far. I really thought the Quinn Ewers injury against Alabama kind of derailed some really positive things we saw from them early in the year. But nonetheless, I think that Texas probably has the better chance to be able to, to hang with the rest of the SEC early on as opposed to an Oklahoma team that is more often than not been very much exposed by SEC teams on the big stage. Speak with Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South here on the Jones and Sun Diamond and Brattle Fine Jewelry Hotline. So, Connor, also taking that a step further, it seems like the nine-game conference schedule is still what they're leaning towards. It doesn't look like they're going to have divisions. Again, just what they're leaning towards. So how do you feel like that part of it plays out as far as scheduling and as far as uh, making this work? Because you're going to have 16 teams who all definitely want to have uh, an easier path and want to keep some rivalries. It seems like it's going to be a very complex situation to try to figure out. Nine-game conference schedule with three permanent and six rotating home-and-homes. It is complicated, and it was never as easy as, oh, well, you know, you're going to have the super conference. You should automatically go to a nine-game conference schedule. You know what the SEC's never done? Gone to a nine-game conference schedule. You know why the SEC hasn't done that? Because it hasn't had to. I brought up before, Sankey is always thinking about the playoff and trying to give the SEC the best possible path to a national championship. If you had just gone to a nine-game conference schedule with maybe no uncertainty of, of the playoff and, what, and the expansion, you would have been cannibalizing yourself. But now that we know, all right, playoff is going to 12 teams in 2024, it makes sense to go to the nine-game conference schedule because you've also now seen other conferences that are willing to do this. So, yeah, there's going to be some teams that are a little bit upset that they don't get this annual rivalry or that annual rivalry. But you know what's silly? Georgia hasn't gone to College Station yet since Texas A&M has joined the SEC. That makes no sense whatsoever. We should have these teams playing more often. There's no reason why we shouldn't have the rotating home and home, be able to, to at least have these rivalries stay intact and be able to play teams a little bit more often than what we're currently doing. Because, yeah, I think that's kind of the hole in the current SEC scheduling model. Looking at the SEC with uh, Georgia, Alabama, some of the losses that they take on every year as far as losing players to the NFL, which one of those teams do you see that um, is they're still all expected to be really good teams, but – with some of the losses that Georgia has taken, especially with Stetson Bennett, how do you see them kind of moving forward with some of that talent they're replacing? Georgia, as long as it has Kirby Smart on those sidelines, in my opinion, has pretty much forever put to bed the question of returning production for them. They just lost 15 players to the NFL draft last year and won a national championship after not having won one for four decades. I don't know if we truly understand just how amazing that is to do. So, yeah, they lose Stetson Bennett. They, they lose a couple of pieces in the passing game. They're, they're going to have difficulty replacing a game record like Jalen Carter and Keely Ringo 
and somebody as aggressive as he is in the secondary, the very underrated Christopher Smith, who had an All-American season kind of quietly for that Georgia defense. But it's still Kirby Smart, and as long as Todd Munkin is still on that sideline as well, their offense is still in really good position to be able to be a prolific unit next year, potentially with Carson Beck at quarterback. But you return one of the best five all-around players in all of college football and Brock Bowers as well. So, yeah, I mean, you should still feel really good if you're a Georgia fan. Cedric Van Pran, the returning starting center, is going to be monumental for that team as well. So I still think Georgia is going to be in better shape probably to answer those questions than Alabama, whereas Alabama is kind of like, yeah, you just trust in Saban to figure it out. But they do not have the household names in the same way that Georgia does. Connor, I do want to revert back real quick about to the scheduling because I want your opinion. I saw Greg Sankey when he was talking about some of the the renewed rivalries with Texas and Oklahoma joining. He's like, oh, you think Texas A&M, Texas. But he also mentioned Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri. There's going to be that. So with these two teams coming in, there's going to be – they're going to hot commodities. Like everyone's going to want to play them. I think a lot of people wanted to play A&M and not really so much Missouri, but these are two big brand teams that people are going to want to play. But as far as rivalries or permanent opponents, do you think – uh, that somebody might be left out in that regard. Like maybe there won't be uh, the two teams that want to play each other every single year. Or who would you like to see play Texas and Oklahoma every single year? I think Texas, Oklahoma, and m are all going to be in the same sort of permanent rivalry scenario. The only question is, is it Arkansas or is it Mizzou? I mean, like, correct me if I'm wrong there. I, I think that's what this comes down to. I, I don't think there's any world in which Texas and Texas A&M are playing on an annual basis. And Texas and Oklahoma have been lockstep with one another, so they're going to be together. I think it's just a matter of what that fourth team is. And if that fourth team is Arkansas, okay, I mean, yeah, that that looks daunting on the surface. It's going to look daunting for everybody. (laughs) That's the beauty, though, of the way that this new schedule could set up if they do have the three permanents with the six rotating home-and-homes is that you're not really going to necessarily be a victim of just having those permanent, you know, those, those permanent rivalries because if you're winning a 16-team conference as good as this one, wherein you could have like seven of the top ten most talented teams in the country, you're going to earn it. You're not going to be able to just kind of, you know, breeze by in the way that you could some of these years in the East, things like 2015, 2016 Florida, like, that's just not going to happen in this day and age. So, yeah, there's going to be teams that feel a bit frustrated. Maybe Arkansas ends up feeling like one of those teams. But to win the SEC, man, like it is just such gauntlet moving forward. Now, Connor, you said the question is whether it's Arkansas or Missouri. The common thought is that those two teams won't be separated, that whatever scheduling, the way they come up with it, that Arkansas and Missouri, they're going to be a package deal anyway. I mean, are, are we – there's, but there's going to be some that, that, that don't happen. You know, I saw Ross Dellinger's projection where he had Florida and Tennessee not playing on an annual basis. Like, Florida Tennessee fans are like, what? How, how could that possibly happen? What, what What's going on? Like, I, I think that if there's definitely a possibility of that. So I shouldn't say that definitively. The way that I see this playing out, though, I, I think you're going to need to add a fourth team. I don't think that adding a team with potentially top 10 talent, which those three teams are likely to have on an annual basis, um, I, I don't think adding another, you know, like an LSU with that group would seem particularly fair because equity is still kind of the goal here. So I, I could see Mizzou and Arkansas getting split up. And, you know, if they if that is kind of what happens to be able to make all parties happy, then, you know, I, I think so be it. There's going to be some casualties from the, the way that the schedule sets up, you know, in the future. 
And it wouldn't surprise me if Mizzou and Arkansas is kind of one of those rivalries that falls by the wayside a little bit. I'm fine with that. I'm sick of losing to a guy that smokes cigars after going six and six. I would be absolutely in favor of them splitting up. But I, you, but you bring it up like there's yeah there's going to be people that kind of get screwed out of it. But that's why in, in a way I'm not saying I hope this is the case, but I could see it to where they put Missouri in with those three teams, kind of Texas, Texas A&M and uh, Oklahoma, and then kind of put like Arkansas, LSU, and the two Mississippi schools all together because you want to keep that. that. That's what makes this so fun and so interesting is that it seems like everybody knows that they're going to have this three permanent team basis thing. But, you know, as far as trying to make it as quality but also as fair, like somebody or multiple teams are going to get screwed in this whole thing in some regard. It's just a matter of who and where. John, have you seen the, the new Eli Drinkwitz contract? Yes, I have. The buyout is $20 million for next year. That man negotiated a new contract in the middle of a year three, a year three in which he did not have a winning season once again. And they are looking at – and he has a new boss, by the way. Desiree Reed-Francois is not the athletic director who hired him. It's Jim Sterk. So she negotiated this contract with Eli Drinkwood that now could owe him $20 million if he is fired after year four which is just lunacy to me. It is absolute madness. And look, I have no ax to grind. I like drink. He's come on my show a couple times. He's a good dude. Um, and like all things considered, like he's a little bit corny sometimes, but you know, I, I think actually getting somebody that speaks his mind the way that he does and isn't afraid to troll is the worst thing for the conference. But that buyout, if Arkansas fans are ever feeling bad at any point next year about Sam Pittman's buyout, which is at worst, like best case scenario for Arkansas, it ends up being like 10 and a half million bucks. I would think Sam Pittman's getting fired. But if you ever feel bad, look at that Eli with contract and realize that, man, it can be a whole lot worse. Is that the worst contract that's in the conference? Or would you say that maybe <laughs> Texas A&M no. and Jimbo Fisher, what they're having to deal with? You guys, I keep this notepad right on my desk. And it has Jimbo Fisher's buyout terms of every year what it costs to be able to fire him. And I keep it on my desk just because I never want to have any point where I'm doing this job and I forget about how much money it would take to fire that man. Because if we're going to talk about Jimbo Fisher on the hot seat, we also need to bring up the fact that he's going to be owed more than $76 million after this season, after 2023. If they want to pay less than $50 million to fire Jimbo Fisher, they're going to have to wait until after 2026. That is easily the worst contract in the SEC for a coach who just went five and seven in year five, and is going into this year after losing, you know, a de- like I, I, I want to say a decent chunk of that historic 2022 class, wherein you had five players that were top 100 recruits in the country who have already left after their freshman season. Jimbo Fisher's contract is the worst in the SEC, and it's not close. Yeah, I mean, in America, great, where you can just uh, have contracts like that and, and make it work, especially here in the SEC. It does just mean more. But saying that, though, Connor, since we're kind of uh, discussing coaches and everything, Jimbo has the most pressure on him to win next year, right, of any coach in the SEC, or are there some other ones that are in there in the mix? I mean, yes and no. Like, $76 million, what, what's pressure if you, you have no pressure to get fired? Like, they're not paying that. There's no way. There's just absolutely no way that they would pay that because then – you're, you're, you're making a $100 million investment into your program because you're, you're also going to have to hire a new coach. And even if the bio gets renegotiated like that, that to me, like he's not under pressure, but where I think the conversation is interesting and where we can kind of separate this 
once upon a time, we thought Jimbo Fisher was one of the five best coaches in the country. And that's when a- like when A&M hired him after the 2017 season, we're like, wow, A&M's got a top five coach. We can't say that anymore. Can we even say that Jimbo Fisher is the top 10 coach in the country? I don't think so. I think Mark Stoops is a better coach than he is. I think that's the more interesting question is where do we hold him in the hierarchy of, of this sport in terms of the elite coaches? And how does that impact his ability to recruit moving forward? Because, you know, there are 76 million reasons why, in my opinion, he's not going anywhere. There is pressure on him to win because, obviously, you have that booster, that, you know, that group of boosters, that fan base. And, oh, by the way, they're number one in the SEC in percentage of returning production. Great stat that Bill Connolly puts together every single year. If they don't improve and at least get back to their 84 standard, man, what a massive indictment on Jimbo Fisher that would be. So at one point, then, could you see that they would want out if, if the money makes sense and uh, they aren't getting those results? If it's not going to be this season, when could you see that happening? Unless, so what could happen in theory? If Ross York, the A&M athletic director, looks at Jimbo and says, look, man, uh, we, we got to be able to kind of move some things around here. We'll up your base pay, but we're going to reduce this buyout significantly essentially give him like the scott frost jim harbaugh treatment but those that those contracts were like a fourth of you know the buyout that we're talking about here with jimbo fisher unless that were to get renegotiated there's no way that we should be having any sort of jimbo fisher hot seat conversation until like at least the end of 2024 because texas coming into we'll tie it all together with texas Texas coming into the SEC, if Texas all of a sudden looks like it's on the rise and A&M is just stuck in this loveless marriage with Jimbo Fisher, then you could see some things start to move, and that's what would maybe push some people at A&M to say, all right, enough is enough. It's been seven years. This isn't working. Let's cut the man his check, and let's be on our way. So real quick before I let you get out of here, because uh, I know that uh, we're going to be up against it, but since uh, we're talking about Arkansas, Sam Pittman, everything, what did, what did you just kind of make of their offseason and heading into this upcoming season for Arkansas? Should there be some positive vibes? Yeah, I mean, I think Dan Enos is, uh, considering the timing of, of the hiring cycle, great hire to be able to get that as your OC to replace Kendall Bryles after the off-court exit to TCU. Um, I, I still have just so many questions about, about the defense. And I, I think the vibes on offense could potentially be really solid, especially if you make uh, you know some more post-spring portal additions with the receivers and, and be able to get some more help there. But I, I still look at this situation and say, you know, I, I just worry about KJ and Rocket kind of carrying this team. And I worry a little bit, you know, my co-host Will Ogren brings it up all the time, like, man, what does Arkansas look like if KJ goes down? Like that, that is a – scary proposition especially with so many new receivers and trying to figure out what in the world this defense is going to look like Arkansas got a little bit of a taste of that this past year albeit with mixed results with Malik Hornsby who's obviously now gone but yeah I mean that's kind of the big lingering question and it kind of sets the ceiling on what we think Arkansas is capable of in 2023. Well Connor as always man we appreciate you joining us okay real quick Super Bowl pick who you got Chiefs or Eagles? Oh uh Chiefs by three, but rooting for the Eagles because how can you not root for Jalen Hurts? <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Connor, as always, man, we appreciate you joining us. Enjoy the Super Bowl weekend, man. We'll be catching up with you later, all right? Appreciate it, guys.